The following podcast may be a little dirty, but forget about that. I'm going to tell you to go to our Twitter feed at SlateGist.com. It's Friday, October 23rd, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and we have entered the Tony Babalewski phase of the campaign. Oh, it's hard to keep some of these characters straight. There is a falconer named Parrot, a Mac shop owner named Mac, who is a blind man as an eyewitness. Also, there is the Burisma Miasma narrated by some jabroni named Tony Babalinski. Back when Biden was VP, the conspiracy theories were all Jeremiah Wright and Sal Alinsky. Now it's about eyewitnesses with no sight and Tony Babalewski. You may think I am just speaking in tongues here. What with the wind crying Babalewski? I understand. These are all characters from the disinformation fever swamp that Donald Trump is desperately hoping becomes the butter emails of 2020. Here's how Republican strategist Mike Murphy described it on the Hacks on Tap podcast. It's all Fox <laughs> News bubble code word crap. You got to like watch four days of Fox News to catch up to what the hell he yeah. was talking about. Well, that is just a characterization. Let's go to the original source. Here we give Donald Trump the space to make the case that the American people can follow along with. Because right. the kind of things that you've done and the kind of monies that your family has taken, I mean, your brother made money in Iraq, me- millions of dollars. Your other bre- brother made a fortune. And it's all through you, Joe. And they say you get some of it. And you do live very well. You have houses all over the place. You live very well. Russia. Okay. Um, maybe let's play another comment. Let's, let's allow him to speak to us clearly and cogently. So we get what he's talking about. Your son gave you, they even have a statement that we have to give 10% to the big man. You're the big man, I think. I don't know, maybe you're not, but you're the big man, I think. Your son said we have to give 10% to the big man. Joe, what's that all about? It's terrible. Say it ain't so, Joe, or don't, since no one knows what the president is talking about. I think Donald Trump may have just made a good case against electing the late Clarence Clemens as president possibly Wilt Chamberlain. Walt Bellamy? I'm, I'm confused. Is Wes Unseld being implicated here somehow? It is so damn goofy. On Fox, I heard some analysis uh-huh, saying, you know, it really is a strong argument. It's just that Trump didn't lay it out properly. Yeah, like Charlie Day and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. You gotta be kidding me! I got boxes full of Pepe! The debate rules just didn't allow access to enough red string to connect all the dots. George Murison. Is that who we're talking about? Hunter Biden did business with Manute Bull? What does it mean? If you must know, and you must not, but the Mac shop owner named Mac got a Mac from Hunter Biden, but he couldn't even say, hey, Mac, are you Hunter Biden? Because he has some sort of vision problem, which is being described as him being legally blind, but I can't find that exact quote from him calling his vision problem that. He just says it's a vision problem that hindered identification of whoever dropped off three watery laptops. Weirdly, pictures of this guy, Mac, pictures of this guy online have him posing next to a target with an ax in it. He was just doing an ax throwing competition. I say after this is all done, we need to investigate Mac, the Delaware Mac man, for not just monkeying about with the Russians, to see who authorized a man with vision impairment to do a bout of axe throwing. 
The falconer I mentioned. Did I mention the falconer yet? Yeah, up top I did. Sorry. The falconer who I mentioned up top is really a falconer. Is a falconer to the Shah. He is the guy spreading the Osama bin Laden wasn't really killed theory. Well, Trump is the super spreader of that theory. But he is a guy named Alan Howell Parrott, who literally was the falconer to the Shah of Iran, dentist to the stars, falconer to the Shah, same deal. And he stars in a documentary about the illicit falcon trade. Draft picks to the Cleveland Browns for Julio Jones. I'm sorry, I'm making jokes to amuse myself this episode. My mind is reeling. Seriously, or not seriously. Seriously, seriously, but I'll just tell you what's been alleged. Uh, Alan Parrott, this guy says that Osama bin Laden, the whole assassination of him was faked. And you can find out more about this in a documentary about the illicit falcon trade called Feathered Cocaine. (laughs) Winged heroin or beaked moonshine, not available as titles. So we have a falcon, we have a parrot. Oh, and here's a hawk. After months of discussion, I agreed to Gillier and Hunter Biden's request to become CEO of the entity to be called Sinohawk. Sino representing the Chinese side, Hawk representing Hunter Biden's brother Bo's favorite animal. That was Tony Bobolinsky, by the way. That was him, Bobolinsky, who alleges Joe Biden was to be paid by this corporation, Sinohawk, only there were no payments ever recorded. And Bobolinsky's allegations of payment to the big man reportedly, and this is reported by Fox News, reportedly actually meant to China or Chinese officials. In fact, this is, it's also convoluted. It's really not spending your time tracking every bit of it down. Every right-wing outlet, the right-wing of the hawk, the right-wing of the falcon, they've all done this thing where they push out one part of this sprawling story But then another part of their organization tells you, yeah, there's not anything there. Like the New York Post, they first broke the story, but the reporter who wrote the story up wouldn't put his name on it. And the name of the actual Post reporter whose name was on the story had nothing to do with the story. And then the Wall Street Journal editorial page put some allegations in print, but the Wall Street Journal's news pages knocked down those allegations. And then Fox News has been pretty credulous in spreading the story. But Fox News reporter Jack Heinrich reviewed all the documents and say, no, no, nothing there. The big man just means China. So what I'm saying is Yao Ming. In a way, I apologize for taking you all through that aviary of avarice, complete with parrot, falcon, hawk, and of course, the North American crested Babalewski. Wonderful plumage on the Babalewski. My name is Tony Babalewski. 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 Shh, quiet. And you could hear it echo through the Ural Mountains and waft softly down the Volga. Babalewski. On the show today, I spiel about a few of the talking points that Trump was adhering to in the debate and around the debate and how those points reveal the misconceptions he has about politics in general. An overly defecatory donkey may be invoked to further the point. But first, Will Salatin has been covering politics for going on decades, and he knows what counts as normal and what counts as useful, and he's here to tell us if any of what we saw last night might have been some of the first, but none of the other. Slate's Will Salatin, up next. (laughs) 
So in the books is, depending on how you look at it, the most hinged debate of the Donald Trump presidency or pre-presidency or the fifth craziest presidential debate in U.S. history. I think both are true. Let's hear what Will Salatan thinks. He covers such matters for the outlet known as Slate.com. Hey, Will, how are you? Great, Mike. How you doing? I'm pretty good. Do you subscribe to the theory? I think it is true that Donald Trump is behind, so he needed to do something dramatic and drastic, and yet his strategy for this debate, perhaps demanded and dictated by history, was to play it for Donald Trump essentially safe? Yeah. No, I I thought Trump had a much better debate than the first debate. Uh, I guess we only have two, so there's the first and the final. This one was way better for him. The weird thing is I have been watching a lot of Donald Trump on the campaign trail since the first debate, and he goes around and he tells his crowds that he did great in the first debate, that that he won, that he looked good, everybody loved it. And then he comes out for the second debate, the last debate, and completely does the opposite. You know, he's... He doesn't interrupt. I mean, some of it was that he couldn't interrupt, right? His mic was cut. But he was he was clearly trying not to. So whatever he told his crowds, he clearly absorbed from somebody that what he did in the first debate, being a bully and constantly interrupting and just being obnoxious, backfired and that he better play it straight. So he did that. And I thought that came across relatively well for Donald Trump. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And in fact, there was one moment where he was solicitous, complimentary to the moderator, Kristen Welker. And I said to myself, that's a really good, smooth move. But also, and I got a little scared, this shows that Donald Trump can take advice, can learn and change, can do things that help him politically, that made me a little nervous. Yeah, but of course, the (laughs) the other way of looking at it and the way that a lot of Republican political operatives look at it is if he can do this once at the end, you know, 11 days before the election, why couldn't he do it before? And the answer is that by and large, he can't. He can't. He can do it once, but he can't do it as a rule. And he he needed to have done this two weeks ago, and he needed to have done it two years ago, and he needed to have been doing it for a long time. So he's already dug himself into such a hole that a lot of people who look at this and say, hey, that was a pretty nice version of Donald Trump, have already decided to vote against him. Yes. And, you know, I think he is right in that he understands what a brand is, and his brand is not the normal guy who does normal things. And so even when he occasionally does that, he knows he didn't get to this position in politics by doing those things that kind of anyone can do, although sometimes we think Trump can't do them. He got this far. It is true by attending to his base. I think he overdoes that. And I do think emotion is part of that. Like I've been watching him on the hustings too. He loves the adoration of the crowd. I don't know that the arguments he's making, even the places he's choosing to go are strategically the smartest, but at least we saw that he does sometimes allow strategy come into play. And I think we saw that in 2016 when he basically shut up for the last, I don't know, eight, 10 days of the election. And that very much helped him also. Right. But we forget sometimes that the second half of the strategy that the Republican operatives wanted Trump to do. So one was just not to be a jerk, right? He was a jerk Mm -hmm. in the first debate and that just overshadowed any points he made. But the other part of it was that they thought that the Republicans thought that if Trump had 
been a little quieter, a little bit nicer, that Biden would have been exposed, that his answers were bad, that he would look bad, and that people who were thinking, I really don't like Trump that much, although I'm relatively happy with how the economy was, at least until COVID. I don't know about this Biden guy. They would look at Biden's performance and say, I don't know, he's a shaky old man. He doesn't have it together. I don't think I can vote for him. So the theory of the second debate was that if Trump would shut up, people would see that Biden, and that did not happen. So Trump backing off and let, letting Biden speak, Biden actually spoke pretty well, and that kind of thwarted the whole strategy of let Biden implode. Right, because there is strategy, there is strategy at play. It's more fun and sometimes very tempting to analyze things just through the lens of what's going on in Donald Trump's brain and the strong suspicion that it's not a very strong brain. But I do think, we talked about this last time, I do think it was a strategy, it doesn't mean it's a smart strategy, a tactic at least, to be bombastic and to get Biden to fluster or literally stutter, okay? So that was a strategy that didn't work. So then he backed off and he tried a different strategy, but it also didn't work. It didn't work in a way that reflected back on him as poorly, but both modes, both poles of acting as bad as Donald Trump could act and probably as nice as Donald Trump could act, neither of them made Biden worse than Biden could be. Yeah. And you know, you can weirdly, you can make an argument that Trump was kind of vindicated in his rationale for what he did in the first debate. I mean, not that it I worked, agree, but, yeah. but that right. the alternative didn't. So, I mean, part of Trump's idea, as you're pointing out, is his idea in the first debate was partly to fluster Biden, right, by being aggressive. So he backs off. He doesn't, he's not a jerk. He fails to fluster Biden. And it turns out that an unflustered Biden performs relatively well. I mean, Trump being Trump and wanting to always vindicate himself, regardless of whether that actually helps him in the election, is probably telling his advisors, see, what I did the first time was better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, if you want to talk about this, and here we are bending over backwards to compliment the strategy of Donald Trump. But to take the big swing, to take the big risk in the first debate where it can have the most impact and like reset terms a month before the election instead of two weeks before the election and a month before people start or a couple weeks before people start voting, that might have been the better time to try the more desperate maneuver because he was really down in the polls. That is true also. Yeah, though, that's true. I mean, sometimes I think about this in terms of football, right? So if you're a football mm -hmm. fan, you're watching after the game, your team lost. You're like, why did we throw on every down? And we got picked off twice and that finished off the game. And I'm sure the quarterback could come into your living room. He would say, you moron, we were down 17 points. Of course we had to throw. The Trump campaign might say that or Donald Trump might say that himself. Right, right. Now, let's, let's do some acknowledgments. When we say that Trump was nicer or behaved himself... Uh, he didn't. <laughs> he actually, not not compared to everyone else on the planet. And there were some jibes that I probably think weren't fair, but might have worked. For instance, I think he sensed that in the first debate, when he said to Biden, where are your endorsements? Where are your endorsements from the police union? And Biden didn't have an answer. He chalked that up as a victory. And he tried a couple of versions of that. Who built the cages? Who built the cages, Joe? I don't know how this will play, uh, given what Americans really care about. But just as a moment out of context, I think maybe it was a rhetorical point for Trump. I will say that as I was watching the debate, before I looked at any of the post-debate polling, I worried. I worried on Biden's behalf because I thought Trump was scoring points with low-information voters. That is right. to say, there are a lot of people 
who tune in at the end of the campaign at the, for the last debate because they haven't been paying attention up to that point. And these are people who, almost by definition, haven't been paying attention, uh, don't know that much. So when they hear, as they did in this debate, attack after attack from Trump about, and the thing that bothered me was the ones on Biden's family. He's corrupt. Trump kept repeating that the Biden family was getting three and a half million dollars from, who was it, Russians? Uh, <laughs> he, had a, he had a whole sequence of Russians, Some Chinese, Russians, some Ukrainians, Chinese, yeah. yeah. So a I'm, falconer maybe, yeah. And Trump just kept repeating it. And that number three and a half million stuck in my head because I was thinking, if I'm a low information voter, I might be suspicious. Well, that's just one candidate talking about the other, but he keeps quoting this number. So that must be a real thing. So I wondered as I was watching it, if that was sinking in and people were thinking, I don't know about this Biden guy. He sounds kind of corrupt, but from the post-debate polling, I didn't see evidence that that is a significant hit on Biden. Yeah. I do think that if it was just two guys arguing for the, you know, 90 minutes that they argued, maybe it would seem to someone who is not that familiar with the arguments or even English that Trump did better. But in terms of everything that people care about, it didn't seem that Trump did better, even on who, you know, scored a tiny little point within the argument that was being had. Yeah. And on the point scoring, Trump has a bad habit of scoring points when he doesn't need to and in ways that aren't helpful to him. I mean, you know, normally we think of that as sort of a nerd thing, right? Like a, a debater who wants to beat you even though he's coming across as a jerk in the course of doing so. I mean, this is a job interview, right? People are like, who do we want for the next four years? So if you come across as a jerk, even though you win the point, that is a net loss for you. But I mean, to take a couple of Trump's retorts, the one about uh, swine flu, you were bringing up swine flu, you know, Trump says, well, that was far less lethal. <laughs> so, like, that's supposed to be a credit to him. Uh, you know, right. you, we've just discussed how hundreds of thousands of Americans are dying. And I think a, an average viewer yeah. comes away. Right, right. Thinking, I'm sure the Obama administration's policy towards paper cuts might have been a disaster, too. But as you say, if the severity right. of the underlying condition isn't that big, let's not right. judge so them so far harshly. Less lethal was, far less lethal was the takeaway there. The other one was... Uh, I mean, there were several of these, but one of them was the one about kids at the border, kids taken from their parents. Yeah. Uh, so Biden's like, this is an outrage. This is a violation of human rights, taking kids from their parents. We can't even find them. And Trump responds, they're so well taken care of. They're in facilities that are so clean. I mean, come <laughs> on, man. Like, no one cares. Like, first of all, it's not true. You know, the reporters mm -hmm. went down there and like, it wasn't like that. But secondly, like, hey, you know, we, we can't find their parents we, whom we took them away from, but... Rest assured, we've got them in really nice facilities by themselves. That is just such a terrible answer. And Trump seems not to understand that. He didn't engage. Yeah. And and a couple of the worst moments, not only to people who hate him and were always going to hate him, but either low information voters or I call them cross-pressured voters because I don't know who's undecided, were Charlottesville and kids in cages. Those are things people remember. And he did botch those answers because he botched the policy and there's nothing to say about it. And by those answers with Charlottesville, you know, the questions on race in this debate, why do you think he does this thing, which is obviously a joke about I'm the least racist person and I'm the best president for the black community since Abraham Lincoln? I know his audience roars at that, but what do you think he thinks the efficacy of those statements are? Well, I mean, you have to back up and look at Trump's history and Trump's personality. Trump thinks that he can just talk his way out of anything. He thinks that he can come out in the middle of a blue sky and tell you the sky is orange and get away with it. And because he has some people who will just 
nod at everything he says and applaud him for it, he's become used to that. So one that stuck out to me from, from this debate was AOC plus three. I mean, Trump mm-hmm. in the middle of the debate refers to AOC plus three. He's talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and three other young progressive members of Congress. And, you know, Trump hates them and the Fox News audience hates them. And the Fox News audience knows that they are AOC plus three. But a low information voter or even just an ordinary human being watching the debate, like, who are you talking about? So he's just used to speaking to people who are already inside the right wing media bubble. And when you are behind in the election and by definition, you need to speak to the people who are outside that bubble. You are not making any headway. The other thing about him saying that he's the least racist person in this room, the room is dark and we can only see three people. And the third person is the moderator, Kristen Welker. And she is, I mean, society codes her as an African-American woman. Will people say, I don't know why he was saying it, except to maybe make the point, I'm less racist than you, a person our society considers a black person. And I could maybe understand that the polling of Republicans who say that uh, Republicans or white people are greater victims of discrimination than black people, it would work for them. I don't know if it'll fall apart on him, but it just seems so weird. And I wonder if you think he was trying to do some sort of bank shot reference to bring the moderator into that comparison of being the least racist person in the room. Yeah, the uh, the thing about I'm the least racist person, the stupidity of that line really is its absurdity, right? It's one thing to sort of say, you know, no, I don't think that I'm racist. I don't think Americans are. But to come out and say, I am the least racist person in this room is almost a way of advertising that you don't care who else is in the room and you don't even care what the facts are. You're just going to assert the best possible version of your case. And it sort of telegraphs to everyone, you know, this guy just says what he thinks sounds best, not something that is plausible. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I don't, I don't think he was thinking about Kristen Welker, just as I don't think he thinks about the lives of black people or mixed race people at all. That line, by the way, was cited in the post-debate focus group on CNN of people who were relatively undecided as one of the lines that people did not like. People really didn't like him exaggerating and making light of, of other people. So, Joe Biden, one takeaway I had was that it is true that he has a stammer, but it's also more true now. I mean, and from what I've read about it, you know, as you age and sort of as your overall mental defenses get worn away by time or whatever happens to all of our brains, maybe the stutter returns. It does seem to me that he got tongue-tied or had trouble explaining himself in a few cases, but it really wasn't that the policy was tripping him up and he didn't know what the policy was. I mean, there was one point where he paused and tried to get out the phrase, fire, firefighters. And you could see why someone with a stammer would have trouble with that phrase. And seemed to me in general that this was a guy who very much knew what he wanted to say, very much said it. And those things that he wanted to say were smart things to say that would connect to the people he needed to connect to. Yeah, I don't think the stammering is going to change anybody's votes. People have seen Biden a little bit. They know that he has trouble with that stuff. The stuff where he's shaky is the one that, that I remember from last night was he he just denied that he had ever opposed fracking. And he said, show me the tape. Now, that's really a dumb thing to say because there is tape of Joe Biden saying uh, no when he talked about, you know, a future for fossil fuels and for fracking. Right. And that's the kind of thing, though, that you should work out in debate prep. Like someone stops you right there and 
and says, no, no, you don't say show me the tape because the tape exists and you've just made a next day's story against yourself. But Biden was terrific, as you point out, at bringing around every Trump criticism to a larger point that Biden wanted to make. And the one that really stood out, I thought, was I'm going to be a president for all Americans. So just frequently when Trump would try to score points and talk about how Democrat-run cities or states were doing a bad job and how, I mean, at the end, when Trump is given this question about imagine a world where you've already won the election, what are you going to say to of the Americans who didn't vote for you? And his answer is basically to just go back into a campaign attack mode. Like, he just can't imagine this sort of unifying thing. And Biden comes back to a theme he was at all night, which is, I will be a president for all Americans, including those who didn't vote for me. That was an enormously effective line that was shown in post-debate focus groups, in post-debate polling. People wanted to hear that, especially the people who are deciding who to vote for at the end. So that was a hugely effective message, and Biden kept coming back to it. And I think that compensated for and overwhelmed any small point on which Trump supposedly beat Biden. An annoying thing about conventional wisdom is it's not interesting. And the second most annoying thing is it's usually right. I would say the conventional wisdom is Joe Biden won, not conventional wisdom actually borne out by polls. And it probably doesn't change things too much either way. But if it did, who do you think will be helped? Yeah, I, I think Biden will be helped slightly more. Trump certainly was not helped. And I think the biggest difference between the perception that political nerds like me have and that ordinary people had watching this debate was I was looking at Trump and thinking, gee, Trump's doing a lot better than he did in the last debate and than he usually does. So that could help him. And uh, then in the post-debate polling, Biden actually scored better in terms of who people thought won the debate. And I think the reason is that a lot of people who are watching at the end here, the low information people or the undecided people were not looking at Trump. They know enough about Trump. They were looking at Biden. And so the fact that Trump did better was almost not immaterial, but relatively low in their concern. And what they saw was a pretty sharp, pretty coherent Joe Biden. And so they thought Biden won the debate. He exceeded their expectations. And I think they're just slightly more likely to, to vote for Biden than they were before the debate. Yeah. This is interesting because I think we disagree. I think if anyone has helped, it's Trump because even though he was objectively speaking terrible and didn't make good points and often lied, he was less terrible than he usually is in an average week. And so if you price it against his baseline, you know, maybe a little bit better. However, I do hear what you're saying. And it is quite possible that viewers after the first debate, if the question was, is Joe Biden someone who could be president? They might have come away saying, I really don't know. He didn't have time to say much. And maybe after this debate, if that's the big question, they could say, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, we'll see how it plays out. And like all pundits, what we can do is as we see more evidence that one of us was wrong, if I'm wrong and Trump starts to gain in the polls, I will just back up and revise my my uh, theory of what happened in this debate. I mean, it could close. One of the arguments for why it might close, uh, David Plouffe, the Obama campaign manager, was saying last night that Biden just doesn't have a lot of room to grow. He's kind of taken up what he can take. He's above 50 in a lot of these states, but he's not going to go much higher. So Trump may end up doing a little bit better in the final days, but it might not be because he had a great debate. It might just be because Biden ran out of room. Yeah. Will Salatin is the national correspondent of Slate.com. Thank you, Will, as always. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. 
Last night, President Trump was in his accommodating mode. He gets like this sometimes. He usually is, you know, belligerent, confrontational, accusatory. From everything I see, has no respect for this person. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty cl- or when he's faced with distractions and obstacles like a loud plane and a question he doesn't like, he lashes out. And you know who's a criminal? You're a criminal for not reporting it. You are a criminal for not reporting it. Okay, so that's Trump in normal mode. But then sometimes he gets chastened and he reverts to what he thinks is reasonable mode. Usually he's down here. No, you're the puppet. But sometimes he's up here. We could be so nice, so accommodating. For a few months, he stopped having news conferences because they were becoming combative and they were hurting him in the polls. So then after a few months off, he came back and started talking about COVID again. And he was accommodating Trump. Here he was. Listen to how his vowels draw out a little more as he sings us a reedy little song of leadership. In theory, you don't need the mask. I'm getting used to the mask. And the reason is, think about patriotism. Maybe it is. It helps. It helps. And there is one phrase, and he thinks this is hilarious, where he always adopts accommodating Trump tone. It's when he goes on this riff about presidentiality. But you remember I did, we had fun with it. We'd say, ladies and gentlemen of Georgia, This is your president, and it is a great honor to be with you tonight. (laughs) Things are going very well with our country. Our military is building. You know, so I could do that, and you know, within about three minutes, everybody would pick up and they'd say, let's get the hell out of here, this guy's... So Trump yesterday, in a debate appearance that was still raucous by any measure other than the Trump yardstick, revealed to contain only 34 and a half inches, by the way, Trump lobbed wild accusations and made unsupported assertions and engaged in unfounded attacks. But his tone, literally the tone of his voice and some of his body language, were moments where he modulated and dipped his voice to something less than a yell. This is what Trump thinks other people think of as presidential. He hates acting this way, by the way. He thinks it's the opposite of one in the election. He said so many times. In fact, he started saying so before he even won an election. Here he was in April of 2016, speaking to a crowd before the Wisconsin primary. I could be presidential, but if I was presidential, would only have about uh, 20% of you would be here because it would be boring as hell, I will say. (laughs) Now, let me be unpresidential just for a little while longer, and maybe I'll be a little bit unpresidential as I beat Hillary because, oh, she's... And it worked, and so he was convinced. Never be presidential. So there are two other arguments that Trump makes that reflect his belief about why he succeeds in politics. So I just laid out the first one. Can never be presidential, and he defines presidential as talking a little softer and being a little stiffer. So one of these beliefs, which is tied up with things like crowd size and, and, and cheering people wearing red hats, one of these beliefs is that it is extremely important to generate excitement. That excitement is a proxy, almost an exact proxy for success. When I look at the enthusiasm, 
And we have enthusiasm like probably nobody's ever had. We have more enthusiasm than any candidate in the history of this country. And he has less enthusiasm, in my opinion, than any candidate. There's more enthusiasm right now for us than we ever had before, ever. And I'll tell you what, the enthusiasm, and not only in Michigan, but the enthusiasm all over the country is far greater. And it was great four years ago. They have no enthusiasm. In fact, the gap is so incredible. And a poll just came out. I think it said 56% of the people. Trump emphasizes this for a few reasons. One, it is one of the few poll findings that's in his favor or seems in his favor. His supporters are more fervid than Biden's. Two, temperamentally, just as a human being, that's how he is. And he's built his business on enthusiasm. So if you have an enthusiastic customer base, it doesn't matter if a large percentage of the potential audience simply doesn't care for you. I mean, if 80% of the visitors to Atlantic City, 85%, would never set foot in your casino, but 15 or 20% like it a lot, that is a huge win. That's how to run a successful casino, which Trump, by the way, didn't do. Same with a TV show. Passionate but polarizing, it's good for sticking out in a crowded marketplace, like maybe a city with a lot of tall buildings. But it's a less logical choice when you're dealing with a binary, where people are making a choice and maybe averse to choosing poorly. So reality show, casino, great for enthusiasm. But if you're selling life insurance, you probably want to emphasize safety and security. Other people who've looked at this said, and I think this is true too, that there is a lot of enthusiasm on the Biden side. It might not show up as pro-Biden. It's really just anti-Trump. Lots of enthusiasm there. But the last point I will make is that Trump supporters, I do think they are indeed more enthusiastic about their guy than Biden's people are. But that usually plays as a knock on Biden. However, I think Biden was chosen and positioned himself specifically as the candidate of non-enthusiasm. And by that, I just don't mean that he's calming and he's emphasizing a return to normalcy, that that's his brand. No, what I really mean is that if Democrats wanted a choice to generate more enthusiasm, they had a lot of options. Sanders, Warren, even Booker or Gillibrand, that would get the base really excited, but it would come at the cost of crossing over to people who are looking for the just merely palatable. This is the trade-off in politics. Polls showing a lukewarm reaction to Biden entirely in keeping with the point of the Biden candidacy. Appealing, but somewhat south of thrilling, but always better than repellent. So as I said, Trump always has equated presidential with boring, and he mistakes that as being typical of a politician. When he says you're a politician, he means that you are an insincere or ineffective person. And he said this to Biden last night. Let's get off this China thing. And then he looks, the family, around the table, everything. Just right. a typical politician when I see that. Let's talk I'm about not North a typical Korea politician. Okay, That's President. why I got elected. That let's was, talk let's about get off the subject of China. Let's talk around sitting around the table. All right. Come on, Joe, you can we're, do better. We're gonna- Here's the thing. You know what defines someone as a politician? It's literally having been elected to political office. Elected. And if you're a typical or a career politician, it probably means that you were elected quite a bit. And if you were elected, it means you've demonstrated the ability to appeal to a majority of your constituents. Or, with the one weird exception of the Electoral College, 
at least the majority of voters in the Electoral College. There are skills to being a politician, like not repulsing the majority of the electorate, realizing that a base that starts off in the minority needs to grow in order for you to be successful, having the discipline not to say or do the outrageous thing just because it wins you backslaps from toadies and attention from people who really don't care about you. Politician, it's not the highest accolade you could bestow on someone, but it's not an out-and-out pejorative. It does connote certain competencies or else... The phrase, the insult will be, you're a failed politician or you're a wannabe politician. There are all sorts of arguments, phrases like this. When we say, not your father's Oldsmobile or PNC is not your typical bank. The implication is the thing they're selling, the new Oldsmobile, PNC, is better than the typical. It improves upon the routine competencies and delivers something more. But a loan shark operating out of an underground casino would be not your typical bank. I wouldn't get my mortgage from him. Not your father's Oldsmobile could describe a cooler new Oldsmobile or it could be a donkey with a parasite who splatters excrement on the sad guy trying to steer the cart. If I leave you with nothing else beyond that image of the Trump administration, I have done my job. But I shall go even further than that because I'd like to point out that Donald Trump was operating under a theory that worked once in a specific circumstance in his mind, and he never did a thing, he has never done a thing to accommodate differing realities, i.e. the reality that is right now. He thinks acting like the stiff he once mocked is a working tactic It only seems good in comparison to the kamikaze routine that he has been employing thus far. Joe Biden might be unexciting. He might be a politician. He might be overly presidential. You know who typically gets called that word? The president. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He is upset I didn't get into more details of the mayor of Moscow's wife because she made a cameo in the debate too. He didn't. The mayor didn't. The mayor's dead. Margaret Kelly, just producer, was the one who discovered the mayor of Moscow dead and realized that during his time in office, the only reason he hadn't fallen off his perch is that he had been nailed there. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She'd like for Tony Babalewski to do a guest appearance on Hacks on Tap. Have a brewski with Babalewski. The gist, if only David Letterman still had a show, he could invoke Buttafuoco and Jeff Galuli and then put them in a scene with Babalewski. Oompuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.